This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Superdelegates aren't so super among Bernie Sanders supporters in Colorado. The Vermont senator won Colorado's caucuses by a 20 percent margin, but he could end up with the same number of Colorado delegates as former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton at the National Convention. And that's because of those superdelegates, a small group of party elites. Coming up, why the Democratic Party created superdelegates in the first place. But first, CPR's Megan Verlee reports on the tension over the delegate math in Colorado. It's almost like Colorado's superdelegates have superpowers. After all, when it comes to the Democratic National Convention, each of their votes will carry almost the same weight as the preferences of 2,000 local caucus goers. That's because the caucus process only determines 66 of the state's 78 delegates. The other 12 slots are reserved for top elected officials and party leaders, and nearly all of them are backing Clinton. People actually were blown away once they, like, heard about the superdelegates. Denverite T.C. Bell spent much of the last year training his fellow Sanders supporters on the caucus process. Bell made sure to play up the role of superdelegates to convince people why it was so important to offset their influence with as many Sanders delegates as possible. But he says after caucus night, less informed burners got a rude shock. They see, oh, wow, we won Bernie Sanders in Colorado. And then finally they're getting this piece about the superdelegates. It becomes so disheartening for them. They're like, oh, my work, all those hours on the phone. Wait a minute, just so we could tie... Bell feels superdelegates give the political establishment too big a say in the nominating process, leaving out-of-the-box candidates like Sanders as double underdogs. He'd like to see the party do away with the position. But in the meantime, he's lobbying the existing superdelegates to switch their support. Just because they might be distinguished party leaders, that doesn't mean we can't still talk to them. It doesn't mean we still can't write them letters or show up to events and ask them respectfully and nicely if they are willing to stand with the voice of the people. Bell emphasizes courtesy, but it sounds like not everyone is getting the message. I get a lot of threatening letters and threatening emails. Superdelegate Manny Rodriguez clearly isn't happy about some of the pressure he's been getting. Rodriguez represents Colorado on the Democratic National Committee. It's a position he had to run for within the party, and it automatically makes him a superdelegate. Rodriguez has backed Clinton since her first presidential run in 2008. He sees superdelegates as looking out for the good of the party as a whole. Part of being a DNC member is to get people elected, Democrats elected, and that's all I've done. Rodriguez has long spearheaded Latino outreach efforts for the Colorado Democrats, and he says his role as a superdelegate is another way to represent the interests of that community. He points out that superdelegates are generally long-standing Democrats— whereas some of the Sanders supporters objecting to the process only joined the party recently. They don't follow the principles of the Democratic Party, and they want to come and change it at the last minute. On the other side, Sanders supporters warn the party risks alienating his young activist base if this election leaves them feeling like the system is rigged. However, Colorado's Democratic Party chairman, Rick Palacio, believes there will be a clear nominee well before the national convention making all of this concern around superdelegates moot. We've never been in a situation where superdelegates were the ones that chose the nominee, and they're not going to in in 2016 either. But in this election, plenty of things have happened that never happened before, and that means Sanders supporters aren't taking the superdelegates and their potential power for granted. They're hoping to win at least a few to their cause before the party meets in Philadelphia this summer. I'm Megan Verlee, CPR News. 
Okay, let's find out how superdelegates came to be. We're joined by Elaine K. Mark. She's the author of Primary Politics, Everything You Need to Know About How America Nominates Its Presidential Candidates. She's a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, and she joins us ahead of several important primaries tomorrow. Welcome to the program, Elaine. Thank you for having me. So you're an expert in governance, but you also bring an insider's view as a member of the DNC's Rules and Bylaws Committee. You're also a Clinton supporter. And in 2008, you were at a key meeting when she saw the writing on the wall that Barack Obama would be the nominee. We'll talk about that in in just a little bit. But what I learned from your book is that power in the Democratic Party has been a pendulum and it has swung back and forth between centralized power and the power of the people. Let's start with 1968. Vice President Hubert Humphrey becomes the nominee, even though he didn't participate in a single primary. Is that right? That's exactly right. I think the way to understand this, and by the way, this is not just for the Democratic Party, it's the Republican Party as well. Between 1832 and 1968, so for more than a century, all of our presidential uh, candidates, whether Democrats or Republicans, were elected in conventions composed entirely of superdelegates. There were no such thing as primaries in the 19th century. And at the beginning of the 20th century, there were a handful of primaries. Most of them, however, did not determine the uh, presidential preference of the delegates. Because what what we're looking at is that for most of American history, the nominating process was a party process. It was internal to the people who were the leaders and the workers of the of the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. Primaries themselves are a really new invention, and we really don't have a lot of binding primaries until 1972 and 1976. So the the it's not really a pendulum. It's a dramatic switch in how we nominate our presidents. Hmm. And 1968, at least for the Democrats, is a pretty pivotal year, given what happened. There was sort of disgust with the, the centralized power, I guess. Well, it was a pivotal year because um, there was a powerful anti-war part of the Democratic Party, and they could not compete for delegates because the delegates were controlled by the incumbent president, um, Lyndon Johnson, who basically gave those delegates to his vice president, Hubert Humphrey. So they were locked out of the party processes. So the reforms that took place after 1968 basically did two things. They made presidential primaries um, relevant to the preferences of the delegates. And they also made the caucus process one where people who participated, as they did in Colorado, had to declare their presidential preference. Before that, lots and lots of delegates came to the national conventions simply uncommitted or committed to a favorite son, which was the leader of their state uh, party that would use their power to decide the presidency. And so after 1968, you write, there were changes to, quote, transform the modern nominating system into one of uh, mass persuasion, replacing elite persuasion. 
And yet, that's exactly right. Yeah, and so that bears out in in future nominating processes for the Democrats. But some in the party feel that big losses that follow for the Democratic Party in the presidential race mean that maybe the people have a little too much power and that the party ought to take (laughs) some of it back. Uh, What were some of those defeats and how did it make the party think about the creation of these superdelegates? Well, it wasn't this. uh, Well, okay. So in 1972, um, the party ended up, and this was the first contest with lots and lots of open primaries and primaries that were binding on delegates. They nominated George McGovern, and all the party leaders at the time thought that George McGovern was a particularly weak candidate and that he was too far to the left uh, for the American electorate and that he would lead the party to defeat, which was in fact the case. Yeah. He, he lost badly against Richard Nixon in 1972. After that, there were a couple other of sort of difficult conventions, especially the 1980 convention where Ted Kennedy and Jimmy Carter engaged in a good old-fashioned floor fight. As a result of that convention, the party leadership looked around and said, you know, primaries are by and large going to elect our presidential candidates in the future. However, what happened inadvertently in this new process was that members of Congress, senators, governors, people who have a stake in the nominee, because after all, they run on the same ticket as the presidential candidate, they were cut out of the process mostly because none of them wanted to go into a congressional district caucus and run against their constituents for a delegate slot. So we had in 1980 a convention that was quite testy, that was quite consequential to the future of the party, and which had virtually no members of Congress on the floor and no members of the Democratic National Committee. And so in 1982, the decision was made to put back the members of Congress, the leaders of the party, and the members of the Democratic National Committee into conventions as essentially automatic delegates. And they have been there ever since. And these are the superdelegates that we are talking about. Uh, yep. <laughs> you say that, that really superdelegates were rarely mentioned until the 2008 race between then-Senator Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. Um, Clinton had many superdelegates committed to her, but they ultimately switched to Obama. Uh, obviously, superdelegates getting a lot of attention in this election as well. Uh, and as we heard, mostly from supporters of uh, Senator Bernie Sanders, there's a fear that superdelegates might hand the nomination to Clinton. Uh, but there's not much of a history of superdelegates bucking the, the, the sort of popular power of the party. Is that right? They've they've never done it before. I mean, this is very like 2008 in that Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama were running a very close race in the public delegates. Um, most of the superdelegates in 2008 were started out for Hillary Clinton. But when Barack Obama ended up with the most publicly elected delegates, all the superdelegates in 2008 voted for Barack Obama. 
Um, this time, Hillary is running about 200 delegates, uh, public delegates, ahead of Bernie Sanders. If she keeps up that margin and she goes into the convention with, you know, a delegate lead, then, you know, she's going to win and the superdelegates will vote for her. If she starts to fall behind in the public uh, elected delegates, then I think you'll see what we saw in 2008, which is superdelegates change changing their allegiance and following uh, basically the will of the people. Now, the, the one thing I think our listeners need to understand is that superdelegates, as they're called, are also all elected. Every single one of them is elected by somebody at home. And therefore, they would not change their mind lightly or, you know, whimsically, right? I mean, it's a serious decision to go against the will of the people. And really, there's only two scenarios in which that would happen. Um, one would be if, in fact, the voters don't decide. Uh, it's not likely on the Democratic side this year, but it's very likely on the Republican side that nobody comes into their convention with a majority of delegates. At that point, it becomes a free-for-all, and I think the role of the superdelegates would be very important. But they wouldn't be necessarily overturning the, the will of the people because the people didn't decide. And I think the second situation is a situation where in between the end of the primaries and the opening of the convention, something happens to the frontrunner or the, the likely nominee that is unexpected mm. uh, and causes not only superdelegates but, frankly, delegates to change their mind. Um, and I think there the influence of the superdelegates in being able to uh, lead, to negotiate, to have influence within their states would be very valuable uh, to have. And, and that's why they're there. They're not there to overturn the will of the people. They're there for those unusual situations which can arise uh, where the party wants its leadership involved. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Elaine K. Mark. She is author of Primary Politics, Everything You Need to Know About How America Nominates Its Presidential Candidates. And we brought her on for some perspective on superdelegates. And given the history here, I, I wonder if you might agree with uh, the thoughts of Stephen Rouse of Denver. He wrote on our Facebook page, The superdelegate count is a way the mainstream media is trying to discourage Bernie supporters from showing up to vote. And he thinks that the media makes too much of superdelegates and their power. What do you think? Well, I think that the responsible media, I don't like it when the media lumps together the superdelegates with the publicly elected delegates. But for instance, Associated Press is separates them out. I, I think there's two separate categories. At this point, Hillary Clinton leads in the publicly elected delegates as well as the superdelegates. Um, and frankly, given Bernie Sanders' hefty win in Michigan the other day and, and how well he's been doing, I don't see any evidence that the superdelegates are causing people to stay home and not to vote. In fact, I think Bernie Sanders is doing just fine um, in the Democratic primary. So I guess I question that they're having as much influence as some people think. 
Other listeners have spoken up about their displeasure with superdelegates. Vicki Grival of Golden wrote on our Facebook page that, quote, the very idea of superdelegates seems un-American to me. Mike Gilligan of Littleton simply wrote, superdelegates equals manipulation. You have talked about some of the reasons the party put them into place, but is there any indication that the Democratic Party is rethinking superdelegates? Um, not very much, and I'll tell you why. Because members of the Democratic National Committee do not want to be in the position of telling their members of the Senate and the Congress and their Democratic governors that they can't go to the convention unless they run against their constituents in district caucuses. Um, and the members of the Democratic National Committee themselves, most of whom are party chairman and vice chairman, spend the entire four years in between cycles getting the nomination system ready. It usually behooves them to remain uncommitted to the end so that they can't be accused of of running a, a dishonest system in their state. And so, you know, that's not much reward, but it's a little bit of a reward for their work for the party, much of which is unpaid. So take the example of the Iowa party chairman who had to come up with 1,681 precinct caucuses, people to chair the caucuses, a system for reporting votes. I mean, this was not a not an easy thing to do. Uh, are you? They're not going to say, the party is not going to say, no, after doing all that work, you can't come to the convention. They're, ju- they're just not going to do it. So I think that they are here to stay. Um, I think this say, we went through the same thing in 2008, a lot of paranoia from the Obama people. Obama ended up with a slim but nonetheless, um, real delegate edge over Hillary Clinton. And guess what? All the superdelegates, myself included, we voted for Barack Obama at the convention. So I just I, I just think this is um, paranoid. Let me also say that no other political party in any other democracy in the world elects their delegates in primaries. The rest of the world, including democracies that we respect like Canada, England, Israel, France, they elect their – they choose their party leaders and therefore their state leaders in closed processes that are controlled by party members only. Hmm. So there's nothing illegitimate in – since every other democracy in the world chooses their um, their standard bearers in a essentially a party convention or party vote composed only of members, um, there's there's nothing really undemocratic about this. It's it's the way political parties, including American political parties, generally pick their nominees. But we know that among younger voters especially, there is – and in Colorado where unaffiliated are just a huge part of the electorate, that there is a dissatisfaction with parties. Um, And can you see how the notion of a superdelegate might turn that kind of voter off? Just, Just briefly. Oh, absolutely. Uh You know, look, again, I went through this eight years ago, and every eight years, people discover not just superdelegates, they discover delegates themselves. Look, bottom line is the delegates are not even bound. In the Democratic Party rules, they say delegates shall, 
and I quote, in all good conscience, vote for the nominee they were elected to represent. So the business of nominating a president is a funny kind of hybrid because we make lots and lots of attention over the primaries and the caucuses. They get lots of publicity. Mm -hmm. In the end, however, the actual nomination is delivered not by primary voters but by delegates in a convention. If that were not the case, we might as well just have a national primary and let everybody vote. And there are certainly but, those who, who would, would like to see such a thing. Elaine, that's all the time we have. I want to thank you so okay. much for yours. Great. Thank you very much. Elaine K. Mark, fellow at the Brookings Institution, a former lecturer in public policy at Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government. Just ahead, your feedback on my interview with a Holocaust survivor who lives in Boulder. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Many listeners told us they were moved by the story of Holocaust survivor Walter Plywoski, who lives in Boulder. In my interview with him last week, he recalled the train ride that took his family from the Jewish ghetto of Woj, Poland, to the Auschwitz-Birkenau concentration camp. There was also a young girl from Czechoslovakia. We both looked out that window and held hands. She was dead on arrival. Yes. She went immediately to the gas chamber at Auschwitz? Yeah. She had an open sore under her chin that convicted her to death. Plywoski's mother faced a similar fate, executed almost immediately after her arrival at Auschwitz. Later, his father died, beaten by a guard at a different camp. Louis Daniels of Thornton wrote in, Thanks to Mr. Plywoski and CPR for sharing this story. My grandfather died at Kaiserwald, my grandmother died at Auschwitz-Birkenau, and my aunt survived Kaiserwald in Latvia, several labor camps in Estonia, and Stutthof in Poland. We should say that all those countries were German-occupied during the war. The interview also hit home for Rabbi Ori Har of Boulder. I am a daughter of a Holocaust survivor. My father was in Woj Ghetto, and like Mr. Plywoski, was taken to Auschwitz with his family. My father was older. My half-brother was probably Mr. Plywoski's age at the time. He was murdered in the line while attempting to join his father, rather than the line of children destined to the ovens. His story brings up a lot. Several listeners said they had a driveway moment, including Kelly Bacher of Denver, who responded on the CPR Facebook page, I am now sitting in the car in a parking lot, unable to move from this heartbreaking story. We all need to hear this. And Andrew Kensley of Fort Collins invoked two words that have become a popular Jewish rallying cry, never again. We always welcome your feedback, and we air it in this segment loud and clear. You can reach out through Facebook, where CPR News, on Twitter, at Colorado Matters, or comment at the bottom of individual story pages at CPRnews.org. An unrivaled level of construction is rapidly changing cities along the Front Range. But is this a bubble in danger of bursting? Here's CPR's Ben Marcus. 
An unfinished hotel in Denver's Cherry Creek Shopping Center is wrapped in a plastic sheet like a massive Christmas present. Inside, it's a hive of activity. Brad Boer, an assistant project manager for Mortensen Construction, admits it's not easy to put together a skilled crew when construction is going on seemingly everywhere. That's right. Everywhere you look, yeah. It's, uh, it has been a little struggle, but we're, uh, we're fighting through it. Boer got into construction just a few years ago. He completely missed the downturn. I am fine with that, actually. <laughs> perfect. I, perfect timing for me, I guess. It really is. 2015 was a record year for construction in the Denver area. $6.5 billion in new building, according to Dodge Data and Analytics. That was good enough for 10th place nationally. Across town, Gene Hodge, an executive at Mortensen Construction, sits in a Lodo office in the heart of the downtown construction boom. But he says don't just focus on Denver because this is where the tower cranes are. Hodge says look at the tech center. Hundreds of thousands of square foot of office building, a lot of apartments, um, there's a lot going on up in Boulder right now. Fort Collins has been very interesting town. That that place is booming for its size. So while I agree with you, there's a ton downtown. There's also quite a bit happening in some other areas in the front range. He says it may seem like too much construction, especially when it comes to apartment buildings. But when you think about 100,000 people coming here, it doesn't seem totally insane that we're building, you know, six to 10,000 new apartment units every year. The census reports that Colorado grew by 100,000 people in just one year. But is population growth enough to inoculate against a construction bubble? Richard Branch is an economist with Dodge Data and Analytics. You know, bubble is a very sensitive word to use if you're an economist, um, because bubbles usually burst. But Branch isn't expecting a burst, because the fundamentals here are strong. Vacancy rates for apartments and offices are very low, and so is the unemployment rate. And of course, population growth is high. Branch predicts that 2016 will be another big construction year for the Denver Metro, but maybe not record-setting. We may just see kind of a plateau or kind of hanging out at this level for a little bit. One of the things that might keep Denver from overheating? Banks. According to Jay Despard, the managing director for the Denver office for Heinz, one of the largest developers in the world. For the first time um, in sort of at least since I've been here, um, which is, you know, over, over 10 years downtown is, is you're seeing more discipline. You know, banks are not lending on sort of these half-baked ideas. Heinz is building a 40-story office tower downtown. He says Denver especially is on an epic run, but... So at some point, the music does stop. I mean, it's, it's been historically proven time and again. This doesn't go on forever. But he wouldn't predict when that would happen. I'm Ben Marcus, CPR News. And we'll be back in a moment with whether the state's system for saving emails is lacking. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. When reporters asked Michigan officials for emails about the lead problem in Flint, they got a ton of them. We're talking about more than 4,000 emails pertaining to the Flint water crisis just released this afternoon by the governor's office. The email spanned from 2011 to January 5th of this year when a formal state... As you heard there, some of those emails were from years ago, which means they were saved. Something that's not a guarantee in this state, says our next guest, Todd Shepard. His title is investigative reporter with the Independence Institute. That's the free market think tank in Denver. And uh, Todd, welcome to the program. So happy to be here and talk about this 
this subject on Sunshine Week, no less. Indeed, this is Sunshine Week when attention is brought to the notion of open government. So reporters in Michigan were able to piece together what state and local officials knew about the Flint water crisis and when they knew it, most importantly, by poring over these old emails, some of them up to six years old. Right. Why do you have doubts that the same could not occur in Colorado? Well, first of all, let me make the distinction by saying... Um, I'm only really talking when I'm when I make this claim, I'm really only talking about the state government. Uh, So the agencies that fall under the executive, like the Department of Transportation, the Department of Corrections. I'm not talking about county governments or municipal governments. What has happened is about two or three years ago, the state of the state of Colorado and all of these state agencies, instead of having their own servers that ran their email, they transferred over to Google for government. Initially, I was a big supporter of this. I thought this is going to be great because if you have a do you have a Gmail account? I do. And of course, every day I see that the, the storage keeps going up. You'd think that transferring to Google meant that it, there was lots of room to save and, you know, that it would be well saved. And that's what I, and that's why I was a big advocate of the state making this change. However, once they made the change and I started to look into it, especially with the help of the Colorado Freedom of Information Coalition, uh, it was readily apparent that the the sort of vast uh, system or the vast amounts of storage that you and I may enjoy on our own personal Gmail accounts, the state government employees do not have that. Because Google for government, which is what uh, many of these agencies transferred to, charges, I guess, additional money for... Uh, we can have long-term storage. Is that right? And the state isn't necessarily paying that. That's correct. And what they call it is a Google Vault license, and you can buy it per user. And in fact, the state does have, uh, out of about the thirty to 35,000 emails that the state runs, they do have Google Vault for about 15,000 of those. You say, but, for instance, the Department of Corrections has Vault, this deeper backup system. Correct. But there's a downside in this case, what I learned when we investigated this. And that was, uh, for example, the Department of Corrections only bought Vault for the sole purpose of having a systematic 90-day purge policy, which, in other words, you know, if the email was older than 90 days, it was automatically deleted from the system. Now, I think there are some small caveats to that. And I'll even say that in some recent investigating I've been doing on the Department of Corrections, I recently obtained some emails that were a little bit older than that, so I was a little surprised, and I don't have clarification how that happened yet. Okay. But I can still tell you in the numerous conversations I've had with the state technology office, the majority of Google Vault licenses that any state employee has, they probably have it so that emails are systematically deleted after a certain time. And then uh, just to reiterate, there are any number of agencies that don't even have this Google Vault backup, correct? Right. For example, a great concern of mine is that an agency such as uh, the Department of Regulatory Affairs, which uh, obviously they regulate insurance companies, uh, the division of insurance, uh, all that, that they have enormous regulatory power, day-to-day power, that uh, they do not have, uh, by, by what we've been told by the technology office, they don't have Google Vault at all. So what is the practical effect of all this? It's easy to get into the weeds a bit with this, right. but w- does it mean that if there's a five-year-old piece of correspondence by email, it's just going to be by happenstance that it's available? 
by happenstance and the chances that it would be available less than 1% in my estimation. I remember one time I, I was able to get emails that were 14 months old because they were on a state server and we were able to rebuild the data. But now that all of this server data is with Google, uh, the state would be in an enormous position to prevent that data from being gathered. All right. We reached out to Jackie Melmed. She is Governor Hickenlooper's chief legal counsel. She says the state has a general approach to maintaining documents, but the term documents, she says, is broad. Email is not um, is actually not considered a record under our state archive statute. You know, for practical purposes, we work in email all all the time, and our policy is that we maintain anything that's needed to get your job done. And also, under any policy, all final versions of documents and those sorts of things are automatically, um, well, I shouldn't say all, um, many final versions are public documents and available to the public no matter what form they're stored in. And she went on to say this. We have to maintain an appropriate balance that allows people to get their work done, um, that maintains transparency where it's appropriate. And all of our policies work toward striking the appropriate balance. And do you agree that there has to be a balance between transparency and record keeping and time and money? Oh, certainly. I mean, I'm an employee of the Independence Institute. We're a small government think tank. Uh, Certainly the last thing we want to do is overburden government with something as silly as, you know, just spending their whole day archiving emails. But I I think it's probably intuitive to most of your listeners that uh, Google Vault or or an email system that that the duplication or the retention of these documents can be done automatically with honestly zero effort from the state employee that it works silently in the background it is it archives all inbound and outbound emails. And there really is, I mean, the worker can, you know, make their own folders, organize and delete as they need. But Google Vault will be archiving this data permanently for a fixed period of time, one year, three years or five years. But that would require money, would it not? It would. The great thing is, is the cost of Google Vault has come down in, in recent years dramatically. Uh, I believe when I first started this with OIT, they said it was $30 per user. It's now now at about three. Additionally, the Office of Information Technology has told us that by not using the state's own servers and moving over to Google, they have enjoyed cost savings, uh, about $2 million in the first year and $3 million in the second year. Because they're not maintaining their own servers. Correct. And so all I would ask is, can we take a portion of that savings? Uh, If you saved $3 million, can we take a million of that, or maybe even far less, and buy Google Vault We don't even have to buy it for every state employee. Can we just take the top half of any agency and give them Google Vault? That's called a capstone theory to to buying archiving. A capstone approach, meaning that uh, it's not that you need to archive indefinitely every email from every worker in state government, but that there are obviously ones who wield more power and who are more influential and whose emails... Uh, might be better kept for a period of, of, of years. Exactly. You look at those cabinet appointments that the governor makes. You look at uh, the, the directors and the deputy directors directly underneath that cabinet official and the next layer of management. And if you are archiving them, you're doing a good job of providing transparency to your people. But presumably that would require some kind of legislative fix, would it not? Uh, as I understand it right now, this largely rests under the power of the executive. The governor's office would have the power to say, 
say, uh, you know, I mean, the, the legislature could obviously try to mandate some constraints on these agencies, which would have to go through the process. But I don't see anything that would hinder the governor from just being able to do this with executive powers. Okay, so this capstone approach, this notion that those with the most power and influence, those with the titles, their emails should be preserved um, is something that we put to the governor's office. Here again is his chief legal counsel. We want everyone to be able to do their job effectively and maintain transparency where it's appropriate. So, you know, if, if, if we saw a proposal for that kind of policy, we would look at it and try and make it work. I want to hearken back to something that, that she said earlier, which is this idea that email is not actually considered a record under the state archive statute. Right. That is remarkable to me. And you write in your piece that emails represent the largest document used to conduct the business of the people by our local, state, and federal governments. Uh, in in writing this, did you just find that statutes have not kept up with technology? Well, I think when you look back to the history of open records laws, whether it's the federal law or, or the law we have at, at the state level, all of these laws were generally incorporated in the late 60s or the early 70s, sometimes in response to Watergate specifically. Okay. But so even before like the fax machine, that would be new technology in their eyes. Correct. But at that time, um, technology only outpaced the record keeping, I would say, maybe every five to 10 years, right? Okay. We're now in an era where I think the technology outpaces the record keeping one to every one to two years. Mm-hmm. And so what's really needed is... Uh, is maybe some sort of yearly commission. Uh, I don't know. I mean, certainly the Freedom of Information Coalition, they do great work. Senator Kafalis from Fort Collins recently had a bill that would have tried to update. It doesn't address necessarily email retention, but it addresses electronic documents and how governments have to turn them over. That bill died in committee, but I think there will be a a new one. This is John Kafalis. From uh, District 14. Yes. Yeah. But I, I believe uh, that even after the bill failed in committees, um, the, the Secretary of State, I can tell you, is organizing a working group to address some of those concerns. So, uh, But I, I share your sort of um, jaw-dropping experience when I hear that email is not considered a document. Uh, there is a little bit when, – when she's talking about whether that's considered a document by the state archivist, that's a little bit of a tangent because – when I'm asking for email archiving, I'm not necessarily talking about what state agencies eventually turn over to the archivist so that a historian can go through documents 20 years down the road. I'm just talking about common sense availability for a reporter. And again, if we use the Flint situation to be able to go back and say, what was my government doing in 2011, 2012 that led to this situation that we're in right now? Unfortunately, crisis just or a scandal just rarely announces itself the very same day. Are you doing this proactively or have there been instances where you've tried to find emails and they just haven't been available? Uh, That has absolutely happened to me. If you remember in 2014, January, I broke a story that Senator Udall, then Senator Udall, had questioned the amount of health care cancellations tallied by the state of Colorado. And a couple of weeks after that, I requested all of the emails for the key bureaucrat that was sort of the at the center of the scandal. She had performed the, the calculation. Within state governments. Yes. Yeah. And I said, I would like all of Joe Donlin's emails for February 15th and 16th. And I believe I asked for this on February 18th. 
And they came back to me and um, they said, essentially, we have no emails for Miss Donlin. And I said, how is that possible? She had to be at work because she was questioned by a committee in her own department as to what happened. And they said, if she had emails, they have since been deleted and that's how it is. And so at this point, I was sort of powerless. Either that or I had to sue in the hopes that they would go to Google and force Google to recreate the data. But those were only days old emails, you're saying? At the time of my request, they were days old. Got it. Thank you for being with us. I, I appreciate you bringing this topic up. It's so important. Todd Shepard of the Independence Institute in Denver. And as he mentioned at the start, this is Sunshine Week, which many news outlets honor to promote open government and freedom of information. Just ahead, a trip to the San Luis Valley to see sandhill cranes. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. There was a lot of loafing around this weekend in southern Colorado. Loafing is a term used to describe the sandhill cranes that make a pit stop in the San Luis Valley before flying further north. I had never seen this migration myself, and so I headed to the Monta Vista National Wildlife Refuge for the 33rd annual crane festival. Cars and trucks lined fenced-off fields and out-popped bird lovers, binoculars around their necks and cameras in their hands with big, impressive lenses. It is near one of these fields that I met Suzanne Beauchene, who manages the refuge. Suzanne, thank you for meeting us here. Thank you. Describe a crane for us and describe the journey that they're on. So the cranes are very large. They're the greater sandhill cranes. They're about four and a half, five feet tall. Very elegant looking. Seven foot wingspan, so impressive when they're flying. They're actually in migration right now. They've spent the winter in New Mexico, and now they're here, and they'll be here for two months, trying to fuel up, getting ready for their last flight up to the greater Yellowstone area to breed. Tell me why the cranes are attracted to this patch of land. So they've been coming here for tens of thousands of years. So historically, before Europeans settled here, it was full of water, wetlands, tons of forage for them to fuel up on their migration north. And that has continued, though there's some more intervention by man now in terms of the water, because the water is a huge feature for them. It is a huge feature for them. They depend on it for their night roosting, for when they're out during the afternoon, like they are right now, foraging for any kind of bugs or amphibians. They nest in shallow wetlands. We actually provide barley for them this time of year, and we've definitely manipulated the ecosystem in the valley, so we're just trying to mimic with what we have to provide that habitat for them. And just down the road from us, in fact, there's a pump that's I guess, turned on and off depending on whether you need water or not. Yes. In part, we have to run pumps because the prehistoric creek that used to be there dried up in the 60s and 70s, basically due to our pumping of water in the valley. What do you love about cranes? I always, well, spring, oh my gosh, it can be really cold in this valley. So when these birds start coming back in February... Last year was January, so we can still be really cold, and all of a sudden you have this prehistoric bird song in the air, big birds flying over you. Definitely a sign of spring, but to see this many birds just in Colorado in this, well, it's a big valley, but 
out the middle of nowhere of Colorado. It's just an amazing spectacle to see. It's getting a bit windy out here, and we're just before noon. They're all on the ground, these birds. What is the question you are most often asked on the tour that you give of this refuge? Um, I get really hard ones. I got really hard ones today. <laughs> give me an example. Okay. Folks were asking me how they actually vocalize. It's like, I know they have different vocalizations, and birds, even though we only hear just a few ranges of many different bird songs, they're communicating with their partner who they mate for life with throughout the year they recognize each other and we can't hear that so it's an amazing way they do that but i don't know how they do that <laughs> but you know that they do it which I, is the first step I know step. that they do that <laughs> what is the most impressive sight you've seen out here uh, i mean i've heard people describe that at times parts of the sky almost blacken when the birds are in flight that is probably the most spectacular thing to see which the visitors got to experience that this morning we were watching the birds that were out on the barley field fattening up for their migration and we did spot a bald eagle and a coyote something flushed them and i'm guessing it was one of those predators and there was probably five thousand birds in the air and they all came over us because coyotes like cranes that's one of their very few predators but to get a crane even a bald eagle they have to be targeting sick ones. There's just too many eyes out there. They can't sneak up on them. And that's a huge reason why they, they roost in the wetlands at night. Right now they're just loafing. They're spread out. They're not very active. They're feeding a little bit. They might be dancing to reform their pair bonds. Wait, describe what that is. You've used some avian terms I'm not familiar with. Yes. So they mate for life. And then in the spring, this time of year, they're kicking out junior. The Juvenile's been with them all year. They have to go on their way. They don't breed for another four to five years. So the adults that have been paired or new pairings, they will start to dance. And some folks viewed cranes plucking feathers out of each other, throwing them up in the air, catching them, and continuing dancing. That was just a couple days ago. It's like, I've not seen that. I would like to see that. <laughs> so they're reforming their pair bond. So they're mating for life. That is to say, this somewhat intricate choreography is a way of attracting a partner, a, a, a lifetime mate? Yes, definitely when they're starting, but they still do this every year, too. So some of our my visitors on my tours talked about flirting. They're flirting every year. <laughs> I see. They keep the love alive. Yes. Yes. You referred to what they're doing right now, which is hanging around as loafing. Is that the term? That is the term. And you can see these guys are pretty relaxed. They're not, they're walking around. Some years I have not seen it this crane festival, and I don't know why, because it's been so warm. You know how the thermals start to form when you see a dust devil? There's bigger thermals that we can't see when there's no dust in them. That's how these guys migrate. So they'll start hitting the thermals, finding them, and hawks will be doing the same thing. And they'll spiral way high up in the air when the earth is warming up. It's kind of making an invisible tornado. And then they get up to where that collapses and it's cold. And then they start shooting off north. And they don't have to use any energy. They just put out their huge wingspan and start riding the thermals. But I haven't seen that this week. It seems that there's a crane that is just about to land. Will you describe what we're seeing? 
their huge wingspan, they're just gliding in a few flaps. I mean, they're huge. The wings are longer than the whole body. He just caught a little bit of wind. Looks like he's looking for a place to land that he might not get chewed out of from other cranes. And then they kind of put up their wings for a quick stop, and they still have to run along the ground because they just don't softly land because they're a big bird. Thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you. Suzanne Beauchene manages the Monte Vista National Wildlife Refuge. We spoke over the weekend during the 33rd annual Crane Festival. She says birds will linger in the area through mid to late April. You can still see them. There are photos from my visit at cprnews.org. And that's Colorado Matters for today. Thank you for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner, CPR News. 